Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We were just talking with Edward Stringham about the optimism uh, that's being unleashed as a result of the trade pact that we still have yet to learn very much about, Uh, which brings us really to the commodities market, because arguably that's where you're seeing the biggest uh, signs of optimism heading into next year, uh, where you're seeing the highest level, uh, certainly in crude and copper, uh, depending on what you look at, in more than a year. And luckily for us, we have someone who's going to join us who actually understands the commodities angle and compare it perfectly with the macro angle, uh, and that's Kona Hack. She is Edia and F. Man, head of research focused on macro as well as commodities. Kona, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. I'm wondering whether you think that the optimism is well placed uh, that we're seeing certainly in commodity markets right now. Um, I think it's justified because what we've seen in the last 18 months is every time there's been some kind of talk or resemblance of a talk um, about a trade deal, you've had you've seen markets pick up, but we need to apply caution because the minute it's seen to be fizzling out or these negotiations disappear or it actually ends up being um, null and void, then the markets will tumble. So I think, yes, if this were to go ahead and this phase one trade deal seems to be the most concrete thing we've had in a while, at least we've averted those December 15 tariff hikes. Um, I think that's already something which we can be optimistic about. But there's still so much to be signed upon, implemented. That could all take time. And I do worry that the market's running a little bit ahead of themselves in in crude, metals, and even ags. It's interesting, Cohen. I wanted to go to crude right away because it just seems to me that one of the, you know, the uh, the commodities that really whipsaws around in relation to trade talk is crude. And I'm looking at WTI at $62, and you know, and Brent. They've had a rally here, kind of off of their bottoms. What is your thought? Is it is it really the demand side of the equation you think is is really driving crude prices globally as more, more so than supply, say? I feel at the moment it's very much demand. I mean, the global GDP growth, we all know is directly impacted by trade um, and trade wars uh, and trade tensions, if you like. So anything that can help alleviate that tension at least on the surface, it provides some optimism on global GDP growth, and then that directly impacts energy demand, which in turn um, pushes up crude oil. So yes, this is a demand-side-led um, rally, and it's also a sentiment rally. So if the world economy re- recovers on the back of a um, trade deal, I think that would directly benefit um, crude. Uh, on the other hand, you've also got the potential of um, the U.S. buying more Chinese goods and vice versa. You know, that could mean Chinese buying more um, U.S. crude as well. You know, we, we've one of the big um, bearish fundamental issues of the last few years in crude oil markets globally has been the huge increase in U.S. shale oil. Yeah. If they find a new market in China because of a trade deal, that's, that's really important. And, you know, it cannot be discounted. But, you know, to maintain a rally like this, you really need OPEC to maintain its cutback and discipline. You need non-OPEC, you know, including the U.S., to be able, also be a little bit more disciplined. 
just to put some numbers to this, the Bloomberg Commodity Spot Index has hit the highest uh, level since November 2018. It's up about 11% this year, which is the best annual return since 2016. A lot of the outlook here does hinge on China's economy. And I have to wonder whether people are conflating a trade deal, however peripheral, with the Chinese economy that is showing signs of weakness in certain spots. I'm thinking of the housing market, uh, as well as housing-related industrial companies. How concerned are you about a bigger-than-expected slowdown in those areas? areas kind of uh, overshadowing some of the optimistic relief that we're getting from trade agreements. Yeah, I mean, I do. I, I mean, I would summarize, I think I am kind of cautiously optimistic. I feel that the Chinese economy has suffered a great deal on the trade tensions. Um, on the other hand, they have done what they can in terms of trying to stimulating the economy where, wherever they could. I feel that more of that will have to be um, maintained into 2020. Um, yes, you mentioned the housing economy that's showing signs of bubbles. It has been for a while. The Chinese debt burden is very huge. But lately, at least in November and December, the PMI manufacturing indexes have actually shown some signs of resilience. And that's crucial for industrial commodities, not just energy, but also for metals. So I think that's a positive sign. It would get a big boost if the trade deal were actually implemented. But um, I think it's fair to say that the Chinese government would have to continue to apply some stimulus to keep that growth momentum ticking. Kona Heck, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your thoughts as we think about the commodity space uh, in addition to what we've seen in the, the stock markets and the bond markets rallying in 2019. Kona Heck, EDNF man, head of research, joining us uh, on the phone from London. Let's set the stage a little bit for financial markets for uh, 2020 after the extraordinary rise we've had in the markets in 2019. We welcome our next guest, Mike Gallagher. He's a managing director of macro and strategy at Continuum Economics. Uh, he joins us uh, from London. Uh, Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Let's set the stage. Just give us your sense of how you think, uh, let's say, the UK and European markets from an economic perspective are shaping up for 2020, and given that Brexit appears to be moving forward? Certainly, Paul. Um, you know, I think, um, first of all, um, actually removing some of the uncertainties sort of surrounding Brexit um, does actually help both Europe as well as the UK. It has been sort of a factor that's um, influenced uh, some of the, uh, the exports coming from Europe into the UK and had a bit of an impact. So that will certainly help. But I think equally important um, in, in helping to revive uh, the Eurozone and the UK economy will be two other things. One, the decline in bond yields, which have occurred since the middle of uh, the year, which will filter through. Um, and then also the U.S.-China trade deal, because um, Europe's a very important exporter into uh, to China, and the prospect of a phase one deal um, will actually, I think, calm some nerves. Um, so it's certainly better prospects, but you shouldn't get carried away. Shouldn't get carried away. Let's talk about the consensus, and then let's talk about your take. Consensus that the economy is going to gain steam globally next year. There could potentially be fiscal stimulus, but yields are still not going to climb that much. Risk assets will have another good year, albeit not as good as 2019. Uh, and everything just chugs along with the first half being better and more stable than the second half of the year. What's wrong with that uh, consensus call right now? 
Um, I think one of the things that's wrong with that consensus call is that um, people are relatively upbeat on the uh, the U.S., whereas we still haven't seen the full lagged effects of the slowing in manufacturing and business investment feed through into U.S. jobs growth and U.S. consumption. Uh, we're, we're not talking a harder landing in the U.S., but you know we're talking one and a half percent growth versus consensus of two percent. So I think there's going to be a bit of disappointment as we we carry on in terms of the U.S. The the second thing is China. Um, China's not going to get a major lift from the trade truce. Um, there's other things going on in China. Uh, China's sluggishness by their own standards is uh, partly due to their cleanup of the shadow banking system, which will continue in 2020. And consequently, we think that growth can slip below uh, 6%. Um, so while the eurozone is a little bit brighter, um, it's not making up for what we think is uh, slower growth in the US and uh, the Eurozone. Admittedly, things look better um, elsewhere, but in terms of world growth, um, it could be pretty much the same in 2020 as 2019. It's interesting. I like, I'm like i looking at your research uh, right here, Mike, and I like how the nice graphics make it nice and easy for me to understand. So I got a couple questions I want I to follow it. up on. Paul, you're like, I like the pretty pictures. I like the Thank pretty you. pictures and the colors oh, and everything like that. The asset allocation, <laughs> really interesting for did equities. You, wait, hold on a second. Mike, did you expect to come on radio today and have uh, <laughs> and have us say to you, we like the pretty pictures. Thank you. You don't have to answer <laughs> well, that. Okay, Paul. <laughs> Worth more than a thousand words. All right, so let's take a look at the equities. Your global asset allocation seem to be favoring emerging markets a little bit more than maybe, uh, say, the U.S. and Japan. So willing to go out on the risk curve a little bit. Give us your thoughts on global equities. Yeah, I think there's three sort of um, reasons for uh, for that. Our um, view on terms of U.S. equities is pretty flat for next year. Um, what happened in 2019 was there was very little earnings growth. There was a lot of multiple expansion in the U.S. Uh, market. And now um, a number of the valuation metrics are pretty rich in the U.S. market. So we think we'll probably tread water, particularly given the degree of uncertainty surrounding the outcome of the U.S. presidential election. Um, and we'll see rotation uh, elsewhere to, uh, to markets that have been left a little bit behind, but now don't have a U.S.-China trade war in 2020. Um, and a lot of that's got to push towards emerging markets, we think. I think, secondly, um, you do have a little bit of rotation lower in the dollar into 2020, which is partly because the dollar is overvalued and has been sort of supported by some abnormal flows in 2019, namely the repatriation of uh, funds by U.S. corporates. Um, and as we get into 2020, that will tend to drift lower. Um, and EM risk generally performs better when the, uh, the dollar is trading lower. Um, and then there's still some valuation benefit in terms of EM assets. Um, um, they look cheap relative to DM assets, developed market assets, um, whether it's um, fixed income or alternatively uh, equities. But haven't people been saying this for the past 10 years? So the trigger um, this time round is that uh, we actually get um, the U.S.-China trade war shifting to a trade truce in 2020 because the phase one trade deal is not going to be followed by a new outbreak. Uh, Trump will consolidate his gains into the election. Um, and so we're unlikely to see a breakout of any problems on the China trade front. Um, and then also the, the dollar gravitating um, lower. Um, so I think that, that that's enough to actually trigger and unlock this valuation story. So, Mike, I'm also looking at your fixed income allocation appear to be underweighting in the Eurozone and the UK. So suggesting that greater clarification on Brexit is not enough to maybe drive uh, performance uh, in Western Europe and the UK. Well, I think 
in terms of uh, eurozone bond yields generally, they've got had such a good run with the ECB easing and the ECB quantitative easing. Um, it's now brought yields down to a level that um, are extremely low on a five to ten year basis. Um, you know, you're looking at negative returns on a five-year um, basis in, in nominal and uh, real terms for, for Eurozone bonds. And if you've got that kind of backdrop, people are going to start to look at that expensiveness um, because there's no storm clouds hanging over the horizon. We've, we've fixed um, Brexit. We've fixed fa- the phase one. Fixed. In, um, We're going to come back to you next year and say, we fixed, we fixed Brexit. Carry on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, I know. But um, no, for, at least for the for the first half of the year, there's no immediate crisis point that uh, that exists. So, um, and and that's going to lead people to rotate away and out of eurozone fixed income and out of UK fixed income. It's it's been really surprising to see this bifurcation in fixed income markets, uh, with some people saying that they expect a bond rally certainly in the U.S. next year as a consumer fails to uh, deliver some of the, on the expectations that people have for them, uh, and then you have other people saying that coordinated fiscal stimulus will lead to significantly higher yields in the next five to ten years in developed markets. Which do you think? is the more accurate take on uh, global rates markets? Uh, I think in terms of uh, the 2020 outlook, um, it's the uh, the former, namely that uh, we'll see a gentle rotation lower. And it's not only really? what I've sort of said in terms of um, the... Um, I, I'm more referring to the U.S. Um, government bond market. Lower um, yields, higher so price. More, so lower, a little bit low, of a rally. Lower yields, yeah. So we're seeing the 10-year yield in the U.S., at 155 by the end of 2020, and that's on the softer consumer story. But also, additionally, um, you know, I think if you if you look at the fiscal picture, you, you you're not going to see any fiscal policy change in um, the U.S. or Europe. You will see some further fiscal easing in China. You are seeing a modest amount of fiscal easing in the uh, the U.K. after the election. But it doesn't really add up to the kind of um, fiscal policy expansion you saw in 2009, 2010 from the G20. Um, So stories about major fiscal expansion, I think, are a bit premature, uh, really. And I think um, the the more likely sort of um, situation is um, either little or very modest um, fiscal expansion. Um, And that's not going to really destabilize government bond markets. The, The exception to all of this is bond yields, where we're looking for them to actually go to zero um, in the 10-year area by the end of uh, um, a fair It's a fair sell-off. Um, yeah. And what that reflects is that, you know, we're, at the moment, we're at minus 0.19 uh, 10-year yields in, uh, in Germany today. Um, and that re- reflects that, um, really, we need to, to get back towards positive territory um, yeah. uh, and to avoid this overvaluation. Mike Gallagher, thank you so much for being with us. Mike Gallagher, Managing Director of Macro and Strategy at Continuum Economics. I do think that when we talk about the Fed, there is an interesting divergence going on right now in fixed income markets. Ira Jersey, uh, who is the head of U.S. interest rate strategy for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us now. It seems like there is a bifurcated market with some people saying we're going to see a significant rally. Uh, Priya Misra among them at TD Securities, in rates, and other people saying we're going to see a significant sell-off as fiscal stimulus takes hold. Which camp are you in? 
So I, I do think that yields are probably going to sell off a little bit, although you know not a major sell-off, not a major trend here. So fr- from this level, we have uh, 220 as our base case scenario for the end of next year. So we're talking about a 25 basis point sell-off, which probably means that at some level um, you can wind up with maybe a uh, you know a little bit of an overshoot. So you could see maybe two and a half percent, but ultimately just you know more of a range-bound market in a slightly better environment for the economy than you had. In, uh, in the slowdown during 2019. All right, so a range bound in the 10-year. One thing I want to get your thoughts on, Ira, I'm not sure if there's been any real developments here. It's at that short end of the market, the repo market. Um, one of the things, we've had that uncertainty that came into the market, I guess, back in September. Uh, where are we, or where is the Fed in terms of thinking about a long-term solution, if one is even needed to kind of stabilize that short end of the market? Well, I, so so firstly, I think that the interventions that they've done, they've done over $200 billion of interventions so far, and they're likely to get up toward 300 maybe not up to the, the, the kind of fear levels that we thought where, where they'd have to intervene even more than that, primarily because dealers haven't taken up all of the um, – uh, all of the operations that, that they've done so far. In fact, this morning's operation was only there was only eight billion dollars of bids submitted for their um, for their two week operation when there was thirty five billion dollars available. So you know there's a lot of liquidity swishing around in the market right now. Um, I do think that the Fed wants to have some type of standing facility and operation as as opposed to doing the traditional open market operations they've been doing for the last few months, and, and quite frankly, that they used to do uh, every day prior to the, the financial crisis. Um, you know, I, I don't know how they're going to do that, though, because there's a stigma issue where if you have a standing facility and someone uses it, then people say, oh, well, you lack liquidity. Maybe I don't want to trade with you uh, because you lack liquidity. It goes back to the, the financial crisis time period. So, so I think if they can figure out that um, that stigma issue, that they'll, they'll do that. Th- that could be the interesting thing in the minutes, actually, that Lisa mentioned. So when the Fed minutes come out, one of the things that we'll be looking for is not so much, you know, what what they're thinking about monetary policy, because I think it's pretty clear they're going to be on hold for a bulk of the year unless uh, unless there's a very significant change one way or the other in the economy. But it's how are they going to deal with the funding stresses and the issues in the Treasury and uh, and mortgage market funding? Um, what That's going to be kind of the focus, I think, of most uh, rates people uh, when we get these minutes. And we talk about mortgage bonds. It's actually been one of the most uh, under-told stories of 2019, the sort of rotation allowing uh, MBS to roll off and then reinvesting the proceeds into treasuries. How much do you think that's going to be a support for treasury valuations and a support for yields going too high? The fact that the Treasury, that that, that the Federal Reserve is such a, a significant net buyer of treasuries with that runoff from mortgage debt. Yeah, there's still going to be a significant amount of net supply because deficits are still large. So, so vis-a-vis, you know, issuance, I don't think it's going to affect treasury valuations that much. I think uh, it, it affects mortgage valuations much more because the uh, because the the Fed was buying a significant portion of net supply of mortgage-backed securities um, through uh, through the TBA market kind of uh, what mortgage forwards basically uh, that that they purchase. So, uh, so the fact 
fact that they're not buying nearly as much of that now than they were before, I think it's really affected those valuations a lot. And in fact, you've seen a significant widening of the the, the spread, we call it the, the mortgage basis, the, between mortgage-backed securities and treasury yields. So um, so I think it's having much more of an impact there on, on mortgage rates and, and uh, than it is on treasuries. And I think that that'll be the case going forward, um, you know, p- particularly since uh, since net net we're we're going to have you know slightly larger deficits this coming year than we did last year, but it's not as significant as it was say you know back in 2017 when we had a massive uh, increase in 2017-2018 in uh, in the deficit. Ira Jersey, thank you so much for being with us. Ira Jersey, uh, U.S. interest rate head strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. As we head into 2020, one big question, as Paul Sweeney is very familiar with, is what is going to be the fate of the streaming services that continue to rival one another? Disney Plus coming out. Yep. Hulu. We have, uh, of course, Amazon Prime. And Netflix, which has rallied 4,000% over the past 10 years as people absolutely pile in as they race And just compare that, Lisa, that that 4,000% over the last 10 years, the S&P a respectable 250%, Disney 400%, just to put in context, the 4,000% total return over the last 10 years for Netflix. Just there was incredible. a time when Netflix, uh, the, the market cap exceeded that of Disney, even though uh, it had been around uh, that right. much less. Gita Ranganathan joining us now of Bloomberg Intelligence, who covers all things uh, in this space. What's your sense heading into 2020 of the weeding out process that we expect to see in the streaming service? Do you expect some real pressure to come on Netflix as the other media giants try to get in the game? Yeah, good morning, Paul and Lisa. Yeah, definitely. This has been the Netflix decade, as you pointed out, you know, one company that has been kind of single-handedly responsible for changing the way that we watch TV. And obviously, it has also been the catalyst for these streaming wars that have overloaded dozens of platforms now with live and on-demand video. But I think um, Netflix, as you point out, Lisa, is going to be a little bit a victim of its own success because we are seeing so this explosion of so many new streaming services. And while I don't think that they are necessarily going to cause the collapse of Netflix, I definitely think that competition is heating up tremendously. Uh, there is only a certain number, there's only a limited number of um, services that I think the market can sustain over the long term. So we are going to see a shakeout. But if there are a couple of services that emerge as true winners, Netflix will definitely be one of them. And along with that, Disney Plus too. So, Geetha, one thing we've kind of learned from looking at the uh, financial statements of Netflix is this streaming business uh, ain't cheap. It's really expensive from a program perspective. And, you know, Netflix isn't even you know nowhere close to free cash flow positive. What's your sense of, you know, kind of the overall cost for a lot of these new players coming into the market? Yes, absolutely. It's a very, very costly endeavor. Uh, as you point out, Paul, uh, they are burning uh, free cash. They're spending about $15 billion in terms of content costs, uh, cash content costs this year, losing over $3.5 billion in free cash. And and all of these new services that are coming to market are uh, you know, spending ungodly sums of money. Um, you know, Disney Plus itself pointing out that they're not going to be, that they're not going to be able to break even 
for at least another three to four years, uh, even though they have a lot of the IP, they own a lot of the content. Uh, so this is really an expensive proposition. And I think the key for Netflix and Netflix management is they have promised that their free cash flow burn is going to significantly reduce, but they haven't really given any guidance. And I think that is one area that investors are going to be truly a little bit concerned about. Keith, should I quit my job and become a screenwriter? I mean, seriously, there's, <laughs> yes. there's such a bubble in content right now. Uh, is it a bubble or, or is this something that's really sustainable? I don't think it is sustainable. And I think this is this is kind of the monster. In so basically, way don't quit my day job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, Netflix has kind of been partially responsible for this tremendous inflation. Um, we've seen kind of prices per episode, costs of certain TV shows rise almost 100 to 150% in just a span of two years. And if you just look at some of the new Disney Plus shows that are coming out, I mean, $25 million per episode. I mean, those are unheard of amounts of money. Even even Game of Thrones costed only about you know $15 million per episode. So really, more and more of these streaming services are, are literally throwing money at um, at these new shows. And it, it's as as you as you said, it's it's really not sustainable. So that suggests kind of the next, I guess, real call that investors need to get right is how will this thing shake out? Who will be the winners and the losers? Is there a sense of maybe how many streaming services this industry can really support? So there have been a lot of studies that have been conducted. Uh, right now, uh, it stands at about three to four. Uh, that's where, um, you know, if you just look at households, even with a traditional uh, cable TV subscription, they do have, in addition to that, some. most of them have about three additional streaming services. In the long run, um, some of the studies are pointing to um, an average um, U.S. family having maybe about four to five subscriptions. Uh, that's where you see costs coming in at around sixty-five to seventy dollars per month, and we think that's the maximum that um, you know a consumer would be able to afford. Geetha Ranganathan, thank you so much for being with us. Geetha Ranganathan uh, covers all things in this space for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.